This is Amy Poehler. My new movie, Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2, is coming to theaters June 14th, and it's making me feel joy and sadness and anger. Definitely some disgust. Rose! And I think a little fear. But I'm also feeling these new emotions like anxiety, embarrassment, envy, and ennui. It's what you call the boredom. Okay, that one was weird. It's going to be the feel-everything movie of the summer. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters June 14. Get tickets now. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. No Jumper, coolest podcast in the world. Today we've got an unexpected piece of hip-hop history. The one and only Wendy Day. How are you doing? I'm good. I've never been called a piece before. I I felt kind of awkward about how I phrased that. I'm not going to lie, but I'm just going to thug it out. Fuck it. Yeah, fuck it. How are you? <laughs> I'm good. Today's like my first day not sick in like almost a week, so I feel... I know. I heard you had an earache. I saw I saw on Instagram that you were kind of fucked up, and, and you're getting better, right? Yeah, and I never get sick, but I got this ear infection, and it like actually started to kind of hurt my neck, and it started to hurt when I chewed, and it's just, you know, you no. can get sick in the littlest way, and it makes it so it's like impossible for you to enjoy anything. Life. Yeah. You know, COVID, earache, I'll take the earache. That's a very, very good point. So, uh, actually, that's a good question before we get into this. How is your COVID experience? Do you live a quarantine-style lifestyle much of the time? Um, first of all, I have to preface that by saying I'm really sad that people are sick and people are dying and yada, yada, yada. But I am loving this. Mm. I have been staying in the house now for eight weeks. I go out like to the grocery store I went to the bank yesterday. Um, I went to Chick-fil-A drive-thru a couple days ago. So I'm not I'm not anchored to my house, but dude, I have been so productive in these past two months that it's just it's just crazy. You know, yeah. it's just I'm loving it. I'm I'm learning to speak Spanish, um, getting stuff done around the house, a much better background. Um, you're just stuff. flicking around in between images there. Uh, I've seen people doing this on Zoom. I haven't actually figured out how to do it myself yet. Nice. It's in the settings. It's it's the bomb. <laughs> oh, cool. No, yeah, I, I'm 100% in agreement, though. Obviously, like the 80,000 dead is a very, very big deal, and I have a lot of compassion for that. Obviously, yes. the people who yeah. have lost their jobs and everything, same. But I do think that there's a lot of people, and it sounds like you and I are in the same category, where I am a bit of an introvert. And I I'm, am too. I'm kind of constantly putting myself in extrovert situations because those are the situations that are the most beneficial to me in my career and what I'm trying to do and everything. The truth is, is that one thing I've realized, I get a lot of anxiety from like going to a music festival and I've cut back on that so much. And I don't know that that's necessarily ultimately like good for me as a human being, but (laughs) it's certainly a bit bit less stress. I've stopped worrying about it. I am absolutely an introvert. And when I'm in, I'm even, even more than being an introvert, I'm also an empath, right? Mm. So I go into a room and I'm sucking up everybody's energy, not, not consciously, but it's draining. So after an event, I like have to be by myself 
or I'm just like depressed beyond words. It's like, it's, it's like a, it's like a Coke crash mm. where you're just super, not that I do Coke, but where you're super depressed and you're just like, Oh my God, this is so heavy and so draining. Mm. So whenever I'm in a situation where I'm around a lot of people, I need Wendy time anyway. So right. what this has done for me is it's allowed me to get done all the stuff on my to-do list around the house. It's allowed me to spend time playing with my dog, like stuff that I don't normally get to do, you know? Mm. Normally and, you, have, you're, you have to very much, like, like if I were to have had a conversation with you a few months ago before this all started, I would have said that one of the, like, the key parts of my life that was kind of stressful was the fact that I was constantly knowing that there was stuff going around, knowing that there's a, a trippy red show tonight and I could go to the Can't show and hang out Can't and meet some it. people and, and Can't miss that either. Right. You know, get some stuff That's done. The problem. Can't miss it. It's very strange to now live in a world where there are absolutely zero trippy red shows that I need to be thinking about. Well, now I'm finding all the shit online. Like, oh my God, I missed a webinar earlier today. Right. And then I missed um, I missed a Zoom call with some ARs that were just chatting, and then I missed, you know, drinks with some friends who are online. So I feel like I'm still missing shit. It's just like I feel like now I have an excuse. Right. For me, also, like in terms of digging in and exploring um, things in depth, prior. I felt like all of my research time online, my time that I would spend digging into things was pretty much based around what I was going to be doing uh, content wise. The other day I spent like four hours watching all these Bro Brooklyn drill rappers videos, watching a bunch of videos sort of explaining the politics and the, and the war between different factions and stuff. I've had so many oh friends. God, I would love that. Oh, it's good. I, I can send you I some links. I would love that. It's insane. You by the end of it, you'll be scared for the youth in New York. But you know, I've had so many friends who have tried to like really get me into all these different artists and stuff. And it is you know, I was moving so fast that I wasn't really able to time. slow down and just absorb yes. thirty different rappers from one city. So yes. that's that's been nice. And then I got to I got to really catch up on like pop culture shit because when I'm ripping and running, I don't really get a chance to watch Netflix. So mm. like I've watched Ozark and I'm caught up Ooh. and I've watched Homeland and I'm caught up. So within my circle of friends, I'm no longer the weirdo that doesn't watch TV because I'm caught up so I can have those non-music industry conversations and then I can have the music industry conversations like about you know Andre Harrell passing and you know just different just different stuff that matters to me instead of stuff that I think I have to be doing for my career 100% um okay just just to throw something out there into the ether uh in terms of what direction this conversation could go oh, baby I'll catch it I feel like you're somebody who, as the years have gone by in terms of your role in hip hop and stuff, that you kind of made a conscious decision that while a lot of people were chasing just, you know, money and success, that you sort of decided to base all of your time and your uh, all, all of your energy around the idea of like helping artists specifically. Talk to me about was yes. there was there ever a shift where you were sort of like, you know what? I don't care about the money as much as I care about having a, a positive impact in these people's lives. Um, it started that way. So there was a shift in my personal life because I grew up um, poor. I grew up in very humble beginnings in Philadelphia. 
I, I, our family lived in a wealthy neighborhood, but we weren't wealthy by any means. So I was always the outcast. I was always that kid that didn't have, mm. and I hated that. You know, I lived in an area where kids got brand new cars when they turned 16 and you know, I got a Timex watch and <laughs> not to put down a Timex watch, but I wanted what my friends had. Right. And I, I grew up without. So I knew that when I got into a position in my life, I thought that, you know, he who, who has the most toys when they die wins. And I started collecting and, and I, I played to win baby. <laughs> <laughs> so I, you know, I, I started out in sales. I got into the liquor industry, made a shit ton of money. And I realized that money didn't make me happy and it attracted people to me that were douchebags. And I didn't want to be surrounded by douchebags. I wanted to be surrounded by people that I admired and liked, you know? Uh -huh. And when um, I was in Montreal working in the liquor industry, I came back to the US. I was there for three and a half years. I came back to the US and I had some money and I that's when my life like switched. That's when I was like, you know what? This chasing money thing doesn't really work for me. Not that it's bad and if other people want to do it, you know, go for it. It just wasn't working for me. So I got into the music industry in 1992 and I came into it as a fan of rap. I didn't get into music because that's what I wanted to do with my life. Mm -hmm. I came into music because I felt an obligation to give back to the artists that had brought me so much happiness over the years. So I come into it from a little bit different point of view. And then I started working in music. It took me six years to start making any money. It took me 10 years to be able to support myself. And then it took me, I'm 28 years in right now. It's like the last maybe seven or eight years where I've really been okay financially, but I make more money in real estate as an investor than I do in the music industry. And the great thing about that is that I don't ever have to take on a client in order to feed myself. So if somebody comes to me and they've got a lot of money and they say, gee, Wendy, I want to hire you to help me build my career. I can look at the whole package. I can listen to the music and I can say, you know what? I don't think I can add value. So I'm going to pass. Mm -hmm. And that's such a beautiful thing because there's so many of my peers where they're like, fuck, I got to pay my mortgage or I got to pay my rent. I've got to work with this guy and I don't think I can add value to him, but fuck it. I'm just going to take the money and run. And that's never been me. And I'm really thankful that mm. that's never been me. So what, what was your early hip hop education that made you such a fan of it? And once you got into it, what, what, how did you start working with artists? And I love that you asked that. Nobody yeah. ever asks me that. And thank you. Really? Um, okay. I started, you know, I, I came up through rock and roll, like listening to Led Zeppelin, ACDC, um, you know, hard rock in the eighties. Um, um, I'm old enough to be your mom. I think I'm a lot older than you, but anyway, how old are you? Um, 57 or 58, 57. My I'll mom is 70. Here. So she would probably appreciate hearing that. Woo <laughs> um, so I came up listening to rock and then in 1980, I went to a psychedelic furs concert and the opening act was grandmaster flash and the furious five. Uh -huh. And that's what did it for me. Like the energy and the passion and the music just was insane to me. And I'm like, 
I love this shit. And I was living in Philadelphia. Music, the, the music that I liked was coming out of New York. So I found a record store in Philadelphia where I could go, records, I'm that old, right? I found a record store where I could go and get cassettes of what was going on the weekend before in New York. So I was buying the tapes of the club music, the rap club music that was happening in New York until it started coming into Philly into the clubs and then I could just go out to the clubs and hear it. Okay, so you're super, okay, so Grandmaster Flash, we're talking about you getting interested in hip hop at about the earliest yes. stage that you could possibly get. 1980. Right, and so yeah. in terms of your peers, um, at that point in your life, I don't even know how surrounded you were by like other people your age and stuff. I was in art school. Okay, but so was that regarded as like extremely strange for you to be so yeah. interested in, you know, black music specifically? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, and also going on at that time, um, I moved to Montreal in the mid 80s. And especially in Montreal, there was this industrial music scene going on. So I started listening to Skinny Puppy okay. and Ministry and like some really like hard type music. But then I also liked you know, Public Enemy and X-Clan. So I had this, um, Eric B and Rakim. So I had this weird dichotomy going on in my head. But the great thing is in Montreal, there was a radio station on McGill's, McGill was a university, it still is. And on their campus, they had um, a radio station called CKUT. And the radio station would play like Ministry and then Public Enemy. So it was like, it was like the perfect Wendy playlist at all times. So I wasn't weird in my world in, in Montreal, but when I came back to New York, I was very weird. I was like the white suburban chick that was into hood culture. You right. Know? And I remember like, you know, I talk about this cause you know, my, my, uh, high school experience, I guess I, I went to, into seventh grade, started high school when I was like 13. And a lot of times I'll bring up, you know, and that was 97, I'll bring up to people that at that time it was very much like you had to choose a side, like you were either into rock or you were into rap, and it was like unthinkable for you to be into both because I think- Isn't that crazy? Yeah, and like culturally they were viewed so differently, and I, I try to explain that to people sometimes is that at that time I viewed rap as very, very materialistic, and that was like very- Some of it was. It was yeah. so counter to what was going on in like grunge and stuff that I kind yes. of understand how on a cultural level, people had a really hard time accepting that you could be into Nirvana and Jay-Z because Jay-Z is, yes. you know, glorifying jewelry and money and whatnot. And Nirvana seemed like they're spitting in the face of that. It's, it's very hard to, it's very strange to think of that now because when we think about somebody who's going to art school now, it would be very, very strange if they didn't have at least some knowledge of hip hop or if they didn't of have everything. some some rappers that they gravitated yes. towards. Because even if you think Jay-Z or, or, you know, modern rap music is too uh, materialistic or whatever, there's, there's tons of different hip hop out there that I'm sure will align itself with what you're into from an aesthetic point of view. Um, right. You know, you've watched all that change. When we look back at history today, we always look at it through the lens of today. We mm. don't look at it as what it was then. And when Jay-Z and Biggie and even the whole Death Row, um, you know, Dr. Dre, when that era was popping, we looked at it inside of hip hop like, whoa, aren't these flossy motherfuckers? Like, what are these shiny suits? And 
popping bottles who raps about that shit like it was more like wu-tang was really where the mindset was in new york and then all of a sudden comes this guy big papa on on ships and yachts and you know private planes like what the fuck like if, if you look at it in context of what was going on back then he was so like left field he was really breaking the mold right because you, you hadn't know? you hadn't had that sort of like pimp you know nobody dr- was drug nobody dealer was flashy yeah yeah that was like a very new aesthetic yes. people people forget yes. that that was a huge part of like really what big was bringing to the table was that he sort of presented himself as this like almost uh mafioso mafioso-esque you know drug big dealer yes. new york don you know Frank it was a White. very new character very new and and it wasn't in it wasn't immediately loved mm. it didn't take long to catch on but it was not immediately embraced like people weren't like oh yeah this new thing is the shit it was sort of like man that's so materialistic what a sellout right it's like yeah but he can rap <laughs> right and it's and back it's, then that mattered too like if you were going to be a rapper you had to really motherfucking rap mm. like you couldn't just be you know, a great image. You really had to be able to rap. And God forbid, if anybody found out somebody wrote for you, it was like, mm. you know, it was like, it was like a murder charge. Hey, let me throw this out there. Has there ever been times throughout your hip hop fandom where something became really popular or something was starting to become the status quo and you were so not a fan of it on a personal level that it really kind of almost made you question if your hip hop fandom was going to necessarily uh, retain itself for the rest of your life? Yes. When um, when the Fresh Prince first came out, it was so mm. commercial and so like, even though he can rap, it was so like ABC-ish mm. that I remember being in my circle of friends and we're all in the industry going, what the fuck is this? You know, like we were all like pro KRS-One and then here comes this guy with these, you know, happy puppet-like raps and it was like, huh? And he won a Grammy. I think he's actually the first rap artist to win a Grammy. And I wrote an article in the Source magazine, which was like back then it, the Source was like really mattered, right? Mm-hmm. And I wrote an article about how fucked up it was that somebody as um, commercial as you know the Fresh Prince would win a Grammy. Like, where was their taste? You know, and I think about it now and it's not only embarrassing, but it's like, wow, I, you know, is that really how we thought back then? But it, mm. it was enough of how we thought back then that Dave Mays printed it in the source. It was like on the fifth page. It was like an important statement on underground hip hop rules and you know what I mean? And, and materialism, bad hip hop, good. Right. And I, I look at it now and I laugh. It never made me want to quit, though. There's never, like, even the worst shit that I've gone through in the music industry, there's never been a time where I thought, gee, maybe I should hang this up. That's never happened. Right. But now we have such a filter installed in our brain that as soon as you start to communicate anything that's, uh, you know, that's elitist, it, it sort of triggers in your brain of, like, 
I don't want to be the guy who's shitting on somebody who happens to be, you know, displaying a somewhat more commercial or more family friendly version right. of hip hop. The same right. way that, you know, I very much have that trigger in my brain when if I'm looking at a young new artist and I think that they suck. It's like very much like I want to figure out what the appeal is before I just dismiss That's it. That's how I am too, yeah. Right. But I feel like at that time in particular, yeah. there's much more of a notion of this is what real hip hop is and anything that goes in the isn't other direction is, is an affront. I think my peers still feel that way because a lot of people my age don't embrace the new hip hop or the new rap. And I love it. Mm. I, I love what folks are doing. Like, and maybe it's because I've been listening to it for so long and I've seen it go through so many growths and changes. Like it kind of changes every few years, you know? Mm. So I never become super attached to it but I've learned to really enjoy it. And of course, because I do it for, for a living, like it's my job, right? I don't, I don't tend to focus on what I like personally. Like I know what I like and I know what I don't like, but I don't, because I don't like something, I don't automatically say, oh, that's garbage. Hmm. Because I see that if it's got fans and there's people that like it, it's got some redeeming quality to somebody and who the fuck am I to say something's good or not? Right. And you know? I, to I totally get that because it's like, if you were someone who very much like grew up in the Wu Tang era, it, it could be very hard for you to then, you know, a couple of years later be like, okay, now it's the bad boy era. And now very different things are important to us. Right. From myself, it's like, I've always been so fascinated by the evolution and just by seeing what people within that culture gravitate towards that it's like even though you know because i could very much say that as like wu-tang grimy ass staten island imagery certainly appealed to me on a level that like then i see everybody starts talking about their chains and the, the shiny suits and stuff and it's like i was obviously just not gravitating towards that in terms of a personal usage of those things but right, it's right. certainly you know nothing but like that ever made me think fire right i never wanted to dismiss it because i was like oh if this is where the culture is going i'm going to stay interested in this regardless of if i myself am going to go buy a shiny suit we took it all we brought them to our land an endless night ember hot and icy cold the rage of the earth we made this curse, carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see, we could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Right, right. And and exactly, like I never had shiny suits, I never had a private jet, you know, I don't have a Rolex, I don't care about that shit. Right. But you can't argue with the fact that Biggie's just fucking lyrical and it's amazing to see like the culture as a whole grow and and change and benefit so many people not just fans but like people working behind the scenes like you know we employ people that are somewhat unemployable anywhere else mm. you know and that's amazing to me like i love the fact that guys with tattoos all over their face that are never going to be able to get a job at bank of america you know we have a place for them in mm. our community and i love that do you do you find yourself in any way invested or looking forward to the sort of changes that slowly take place in hip-hop in terms of like 
politics in terms of acceptance and understanding because it's a lot of times I'll go and look at older rap content whether it's music videos from the 90s or even you know songs from popular rappers from five or ten years ago and you know hip-hop rarely discusses those changes in terms of like you know misogyny lessening in terms of um, you know a lot of things like that Hip-hop rarely has that conversation, but you do still see the change steadily if you if you pay attention to the yes. art. Is that something that you're sort of rooting for and paying attention well, to? It, the conversations do happen. They just happen behind the scenes where they should. Right. Like, I don't feel that anybody, like not you, not me, not anybody, has the right to walk up to an artist and say, you're too misogynistic, right. you're too violent. Like, how am I going to tell somebody what they think is wrong, you know? But what I will do is pull them to the side and have a private conversation with them and say, you know, here's something you said in your lyrics and here's why it bothers me. Not that you shouldn't say it. I just want you to understand it from my point of view. You can go ahead and say it all you want, but just understand that this is what you said and it bothers me. Mm. And I think that's a much more productive conversation to have with somebody than to say, you shouldn't do this or you shouldn't do that or you can't do this or, you know, um, it's bad when you No, like it's art. It's an art form. And you don't really want to stifle anybody as long as they're not directly hurting somebody else. Like if they want to hurt themselves, that's on them. Right. Mm -hmm. But hopefully they'll be intelligent enough to know where to draw the line. And right. if they're not, I think it's up to us in the industry to pull them aside and say, okay, Okay, you're taking a little bit far now. And and maybe that's the problem with the generation of, of rappers that are overdosing. Like maybe it's up to us, meaning my generation, to step in and say, hey, I understand that that feels good. I understand that you like that, but here's what could happen. Here's what I've seen happen. Here's maybe where you should rethink it. And then let it be up to them as to whether they want to continue down that path of self-destruction or not. Yeah, I mean, that, that's a, a good point and a very different thing because, I mean, if you were to pull a rapper aside and say, hey, th I think that this lyric right here, you know, think about how a 14-year-old boy is going to take this. Think about how somebody is maybe not right. going to be able to sort of parse the difference and know that you're referring to a specific right. woman and not women in general. I feel like a rapper right. a lot of times might not have that criticism brought into their face until maybe at a later date when they start getting canceled but on Twitter. Um, yeah. But and, and think about the influence that you have, you know, not just rappers, but like even you and I doing this, like I'm, I'm sitting here taking vitamins, right? But I'm very aware of the fact that I'm sitting here on video, swallowing pills with a bottle of water, right? Right. And, and like, I, I had to consciously think, do I want to do this or not? And then I realized, you know what, I'm just going to live my life. So all that to say, everybody has an influence on other people. And if you're a rapper and I learned this from Tupac, like Tupac was like, you know what, Wendy, I've seen two year olds sing along with my lyrics and they don't know what they're saying. Mm. They don't know what it means, but they're rapping along with me word for word. And that's a really scary thought because it's getting ingested into their brain and what's going to happen at a later date when that starts to come back out, like what happens? 
Right. What, so, what happens once they learn what those lyrics mean and they already yes, have it. So but it's already ingrained. Right. Like I was singing along to the, the Pledge of Allegiance before I knew what any of those words meant. Right. And it was already a part of me, you know, and then and then you find out later you start to really be able to think about what it actually means. But I mean, yeah, right. there, there's an indoctrination factor in hip hop that, uh, you know, Absolutely. a lot of people sort of it, it's a lot of people, a lot of artists might realize a little too late the weight of their words because they've already influenced a generation. And does that come with age or is that just something like, is that one of those wisdom things that age brings us or is it a time thing? Like just you learn that after you go forward, you know, three years or five years into fame. I think so because a lot of times I'll see rappers who, you know, sort of like their value add, their proposition is that they are gonna talk about violence, they're gonna talk about wanting to kill their ops, they're gonna talk about doing all these drugs. They're basically existing in a state that they're not gonna be able to exist in for very long because the truth is is that if you live that kind of lifestyle, you're gonna end up dead or in jail relatively quickly. And there's a a certain percentage of the audience gravitates towards those artists who are at that point where they're completely raw and they haven't been changed at all by the industry and then i'll see that those rappers will start to you know go through the process of becoming a bit more of a you know functioning human being who understands that there you know is a very good reason to not be glorifying certain things and then the audience kind of betrays them over time right and that's scary it is kind of scary you know, it's 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 very short lived. I I've also met a lot of rappers that aren't about that life, but they take it on and act as if they are because they feel like it's the fastest way to get viewers or it's the fastest way to fame. Mm. And it's not even about like making money or sharing your music. It's about people wanting to have a perception of fame. They Mm. want to be famous. And they think that that will change their lives. And sometimes it does, but not necessarily for the better. And sometimes um, in terms of uh, young people, it's like they want to, like the face tattoo thing. They're really trying to make it look like they've been through some shit. They're trying to make it look like they're grown. Because when you're like 16, 17, there's really nothing you want more than to be a man. You know, you want to, you really want to be the grown-up version of yourself because there is that, that, that uh, space in between you being a child and being a man, and you're very much going through it in your teens. And That's it's a great point. Yeah, and it's it's like a lot of times people are really in a rush to get to that point, and they'll they find themselves doing all kinds of crazy shit in order to accomplish that goal. Up. I was in a rush to grow up. Yeah, same. Yeah. But the great thing about that, too, is that I went through all the bullshit. Like when I was in high school, I tried every drug that there is. When I got out of high school, I no longer had a need to do that. Mm. I haven't tried a drug in, you know, 40 years, 50 years. And that's a great thing, Mm. you know. 100%. 100%. I went through the bullshit early. Not not to say that drugs are bad or good, but for me, they're not good. And I mean, but that's the harshest one because it's like, yeah, you can have that conversation with a rapper and say, hey, you said something misogynistic in the song I don't like. That is what it is. And that I think is likely to work. The problem is, is that if you're a rapper who's been popping perks since they were 12 years old, you've done such significant damage to your brain already that the odds of you being able to realize the error of your ways and be able to live a happy life without ingesting drugs on a semi-regular basis, it's going to be much, much more difficult because you've really 
you know, addiction is a, is a beast. And a lot of times when I meet people who've been fucked up on drugs for 10 years, it's like, it's hard for me to imagine how I could explain to them what the other side is like. At a certain point, they have to know and they have to have just sort of consciously made the decision that they're just not going to be able to do that. Or just be willing to try something new. Right. That's a no. dramatic change. I think a lot of people and need to go to rehab. be new for them. Right. A lot of people need to go to rehab, at least need to give it a few months just to, to get that clean break, just I think. The, exactly. Definitely. And I, I imagine that could be scary. I was on a webinar on Saturday with um, a guy named Randy Blythe, who's the head of a metal band called Lamb of God or Lambs oh, of yeah, God. Yeah, yeah. I, don't, I used yeah, to see them and, a bunch back in the day. And he was talking about his sobriety and he was explaining that he was drunk for 22 years. And, and it, when he first said that it didn't phase me, but when I thought about it, like after a few minutes, I'm like, wait a minute, 22 years. Like <laughs> yeah. he just, he just woke up one day and said, you know what, this isn't working. He was on tour with Metallica in um, Australia. And he's like, this isn't working for me. I just need to try something different. I'm depressed. My life sucks. I know I'll stop drinking. And, and that was enough to like, get him to that next level and it changed his life wow. and I, I think it's cool that he got to that level but i i can't imagine it taking like 22 years imagine when you what you've lost in a 22 year period of being an alcoholic right and especially Maybe. in a situation like that where you probably feel like your alcoholism is so normal like i've been around a lot of bands on tour super it's like it, it's it's a very different thing because you know, you might be on pills if you're like a young rapper, you might be fucking around with pills and stuff, but chances are that there's a lot of people in your life who are not We're doing not, that shit. Right. The right. reality is, is that a lot of these people who are on tour and bands that they barely have anyone around them who's not drinking heavily. Like that's yes. so normalized, especially back in the eighties, nineties. Yeah. Yeah, good good decision though, like um trying sobriety on a fucking Metallica tour. <laughs> I know, <laughs> right? <laughs> Okay, you, you threw out the Tupac name. How did you meet him? And let, let's hear some good stories because anytime okay. anybody can talk about Tupac is always gold. Yeah, it is. Um, he was amazing, right? Mm. So I didn't like him at first. I, I lived in New York. I lived in the city at this point in time. And I was going to the clubs. And at the clubs, there were always two lines. There was the VIP line and then the regular line, which we called the dick line. And... Pac was always rolling really deep and he was always loud and the center of attention everywhere he went. And of course he was always in the VIP line because he was coming up at that point. He wasn't famous yet, but he was coming up in the underground, we all knew who he was. And I would get out of the VIP line and go get in the back of the dick line because I just didn't wanna be around that energy. Like whenever he was around, it was just negative to me. So I always avoided him like the plague and then when he got into a situation in New York where he felt like um, the powers that be in the New York rap community, he felt like they had started a cabal. Is that how you pronounce it? Yeah. Cabal, C-A-B-A-L. They had started a cabal and they were out to get him. And he was very paranoid. And I saw that he felt like he was in New York alone and... I, I felt bad for him, even though I didn't really appreciate who he was as a person or even really a rapper. I mean, I kind of liked his rap, but you know, whatever, right? Uh. And I decided to to try to help him. So I reached out to 
a couple of my friends in the fruit of Islam, a guy named Brother Arthur, and I asked him if he could protect Pac, um, be the security around Pac until he was sentenced. And he was going to be sentenced in like a couple of days. And you know? sentenced for what at this time? And also what year um, are we talking roughly? Harassment. It was actually rape, but he was he was sentenced to sexual sexual misconduct, I think. Was and the actual term that was the situation where basically like i believe he had hooked up with a girl and then a couple of his friends might have taken advantage of her and it wasn't necessarily him but he was basically roped yes. into it yes yes okay exactly um and it was actually haitian jack who right um was the the part of the crew around him who was a um relatively powerful street dude at the time in new york and he was very nervous he was you know he after the quad um, situation, he was very nervous and I kind of felt for him. It's like if if I were a New Yorker in L.A. and I felt like, you know, people were ganging up on me in L.A., I would want somebody to step in and try to help me. Mm -hmm. So that's what I decided to do. And I asked um, the guys, his his security team, I asked them not to mention it to him because why? Right. Well, of course they did. So when he got to Rikers, he was sentenced. When he got to Rikers, he wrote me a letter and he said, thank you so much. Um, and he said to me, you know, it's really nice to, to know that somebody would appreciate me for my music so much that they would look out. And like, that wasn't it at all. Like I wasn't a fan trying to look out. Like I felt like he needed help and, and, you know, so I wrote back to him, I'm like, you know, dude, it's it's not about your music. Like, it's not that you're whack or anything, but I didn't step in to help you because of your music. I stepped in to help you because you were out here alone. And I run an organization called Rap Coalition. And I felt an obligation to help you, like to step in and 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 help protect you because you were out here alone. I would have wanted somebody to do that for me. And he wrote me back. And when, when the letter came, I'm like, oh, fuck, I don't know that I want to read this because I, I, I imagined it was going to be, fuck you. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like right. my music's great. What are you talking about? I'm not loud. I'm, you know, I, I really thought he was going to go off on me and he did not. It was such an amazingly thoughtful and intelligent letter. And I hadn't seen that side of him. And I'm like, oh shit. And because he came so different than I expected, he really caught my attention and he blew my mind. So I sent him some books. I sent him, um, I sent him Machiavelli. I sent him um, wow. just a bunch you, of different books. So you probably that, uh, inadvertently named the album, huh? Um, yeah, maybe. Somebody yeah. might have introduced him to it otherwise, but pretty likely, yeah. right? I mean, he would have found he would have found it because, like, that was back then. That was the mindset. Like back then, everybody in our community was reading "Behold the Pale White Horse." We were all reading "The Prince" by Machiavelli. So it's not like I had some prof profound, unique intelligence, and I was sharing it. I was sharing him books that our world was into. Right. But it's interesting because, like, if you give a guy a book in their day to day life, pretty high chance they're not reading it. You give a guy a book in prison. Pretty, he digested it. pretty high chance that they're going to read it. He digested it. And it's funny because whenever rappers are incarcerated, I always send books. I still do today. You know, well, I have a, I have an email list of, um, cause you know, there's email in the feds, right? I have an email list of like 40 guys that, um, actively corresponding with 
from the rap world, like either street dudes or rappers or used to be rappers or whatever, you know, like see murder people like that. But, um, so Pac and I became pen pals. Like we wrote back and forth and he gave me some great advice about rap coalition. Some of which I followed, some of which I didn't. And I gave him, you know, what I thought was great advice about his career. I didn't like that he signed to death row, but I understood why he did. He felt like they were the most powerful thing that wasn't New York and he'd be protected. Mm. And he was, you know, up to a point. So I, I, you know, I, I understood him. I liked him at the time that he was um, killed. He was getting away from death row. I was putting together a business plan for euthanasia, which was the name of his label. And we were talking to other major labels at that time. So he so, was gonna change. He was gonna. That was his plan was to leave death row and start a label called Euthanasia. Yes. And what what was the metaphor there? And in comparison to you know Euthanasia, which is basically killing children. Right, right. Um, and it's funny because the plan consisted of community centers and um, um, uh, centers for women to bring their children and at, to their job and put them in this place that would help take care of their kids and get them to the next level as, you know, preschool, toddlers, children, whatever you want to call them. His plan consisted of all that. Like he was really community minded and it was such a perfect fit because I was so community minded. Right. And I really loved the fact that he, this is the direction that he was going. And it's such a, a, a blight on humanity that we never really got to see what was next for him because what was coming was amazing. He felt like he had um, divided the East Coast and the West Coast. So he was bringing them back together. And he was already working on an album called One Nation. He had already um, gotten tracks done, you know, completed by East Coast rappers so that he could bring everybody back together and unify them. And that was going to be the first release on the new label. Wow. It was really kind of exciting where he was going. He was all about the people. He was all about giving back. He was all about kindness. And the one thing that I especially, you asked for like funny stories. Um, I went to visit him when he was at Danamora and because he was famous, they sat us right by the, um, by the guards in this room, right? There was one table that sort of sat above everybody. Um, and they put us in the first seat. And, you know, I asked him at this point, he was fighting his case and he felt like he was going to get out and they were going to release him immediately because um, his he was going to win the appeal. And I asked him, well, what about, you know, the time that you've already served? And he's like, he's like, I don't know. I'm like, well, you're going to sue because you you know you were put in prison at the at the height of your fucking album you didn't get to promote it the way you needed to like you know will there be a um are you gonna sue like will there be a case and he's like no i think i'm gonna ask the judge for a credit and i just i thought that was the funniest shit ever i'm like yeah you're gonna go in front of the judge and say okay i just did nine months 
um, that I shouldn't have done. So can I have a credit for that? Because for sure down the road at some point, some <laughs> fucked up shit is going to happen and I'm going to get sentenced. So can I take the nine months off that? And I just thought that was so funny. And even the guards like in this high tower chuckled over that. Like he had a great, great, great sense of humor. Wow, that's that, that's quite a concept, though. I mean, if you could just be walking around knowing that you got a free nine months in your pocket, and that you could just How about it, right? get picked up for shoplifting, and just no, 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 I'm good. Here's my month. Yeah. <laughs> I thought that was funny as fuck. Wow. So, yeah, no, it's crazy because, like, I remember I said when X passed, I said like something along the lines of like he was the Tupac of our generation, and then like TMZ immediately hits me up. They like want me to say that on camera for TMZ. No. But I feel like whenever I hear stories about Tupac, it's it, like that comparison just seems more and more apt. Like in terms of Pac and X both being young people that were extremely rambunctious, poorly behaved, crazy, violent, etc. And then like very quickly, like the weight of the world and the, the, the pressure of realizing how big their influence was led them to realize very quickly in X's case that like, a lot of the stuff he'd been associating himself with was really not good and he wanted to have a positive impact in the world and they were both sort of taken away right before, before they, they were able that. to start doing that and they were both super intelligent and i i didn't know x so i i shouldn't really speak no he but was in brilliant Pac's yeah. case, he was just like before his time like mm. he was so fucking intelligent right Unbelievable. Yeah. And it's crazy to see how he's really revered as a as a real poet now, too. Like, I, I love seeing the way I, I've read a few different uh, like short poetry books or like articles that try to, you know, sort of contextualize what he was doing and everything. And it's 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 very good, like in my life lifetime to see his his words taken so seriously, because like I remember one thing and I, I think a lot of people kind of have this story is that I saw my mom bust out in tears when she heard Dear Mama. Really? Yeah, and that, you know, previously in my life, my mom had told me wow. the rap was stupid, and I think she had, you know, I, I think at one point my dad had heard me listening to a particularly offensive Tupac song, and he had actually destroyed all my Tupac CDs because he was convinced that his, you know, 11-year-old kid was learning about all this terrible stuff from Tupac. Right. It was and the then destruction to, of you. Right, <laughs> and then to see my mom have that reaction to that song, and for us to have that shared moment of, like, holy shit, like, you do appreciate the stuff that I'm into. Like that, that was very, very big for me. Yeah. Yeah. So th then Tupac passes and what was the change in the culture that you saw from that, from the ramifications of that? I, I think, well, the, the, the biggest change was that it ended the whole East coast, West coast rivalry, at least as far as the media and it was very media driven, but as far as the media drove it, and then also on the streets, like we really started to embrace each other a little bit more. Mm. It made it real, if that makes any sense. It made it like, oh fuck, this could happen. Like people could die behind this shit. Mm. And not just random people could die, but like- Superstars. Like superstars could die and people won't know who did it or you know, it'll be un an unsolved mystery forever, mm. you know? Do you and take I think that people or just became a little bit more, the labels it changed on the business side. The labels immediately said, we no longer want any street labels. Mm. So any label that was attached to any street connotation, 
whereas in the past it had been a badge of honor was no longer a badge of honor. Right. So if, 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 an, if, if I was, if I was setting up a meeting for somebody at a major label, I would always have to tell them, okay, whatever you do, don't wear red or black into the red or blue into this meeting because it's going to, it's going to adversely affect you. So mm. let's all wear black or let's wear white or gray or whatever. But it, it became where the labels who knew nothing about street shit whatsoever tried to learn as much as they could so that they could be against it. Do you think that the, do you think the media really was at fault for drumming up a lot of that East versus Absolutely. West hysteria? Absolutely. Absolutely. They jumped on it at a time when rap was just really starting to go mainstream. Mm. So it became extremely topical and then it fueled like half of the population that was anti-rap to begin with, mm. you know? And yeah. then of course it, it fueled all the racists like, see, see, mm. you know, it, I, it, it really like the timing was horrendous for it. Right. And I mean, I find myself thinking about the responsibility that I have or that other people in the media have a lot of times when, you know, there will be a clip of a, a Brooklyn rapper in particular. I've been pay paying a lot of attention to these Brooklyn rappers, but there'll be a, a clip of one of them basically you know sending a threat out into the world or saying something that's basically them saying that they're going to kill somebody from the other side and you know it pops off in my brain that if i were to take that video and put it on the no jumper page and say in the title what he actually was saying there that a lot of people would watch it would be interested in it would gravitate towards it but at the same time how much responsibility am I going to have if one of these guys actually gets killed? There's a kid named Nick Blicky who actually got killed in New York just yes, the other day. And it was immediate, I think Saturday night. Yeah. Right. And there's, there's, I mean, I'm not going to get into it, but there was a, a diss song released just before this. And there was a back and forth yes. on Instagram that basically could contextualize how, you know, I have no idea how he died, but certainly any kind of tension that was going on at that time was certainly inflamed by a lot of the conversation that was going on online. It's like if I take, you know, an hour long Instagram live and clip a 30 second clip and put it out there into the world. And I, I, I really feel like I am pouring uh, gas onto the flames in a way Agreed. that sometimes it happens. And it's it's basically already done for itself when a rapper's big enough. You know, if Pop Smoke says something about or, or if, if Pop Smoke, rest in peace, had said something about this kind of thing, then maybe that feels like it's more news directly because he's so big that it's going to be amplified. But there's, there's, I, I think the media has more responsibility than they let on because it, we, we are certainly capable of antagonizing a lot of these rivalries. I agree. And, and the media did stir up the whole East Coast, West Coast thing. I mean, it existed. I'm not saying mm. they didn't, I'm not saying they invented it, but they did stir it up and then they created such a frenzy around it where they started um, giving voice to people that probably shouldn't have had a voice mm. or should have kept their opinions to their, to themselves, you know? And it's and very it, much it, the case now too, because it's like any, any member of a rapper's crew can basically like become famous by going on social media and threatening violence saying all kinds of crazy stuff it's like we, we see it all the time now it's like and it's very easy for media outlets to just decide that that stuff is worth throwing Agreed. on instagram for millions of people to see and that's a little scary it's a problem 
You know, mm. it's it's absolutely a problem because bad news travels fast and with clicks and good news nobody cares about. Mm. So how do we get back to a place where people care about the good shit instead mm. of just caring about, you know, who dissed who? Right, definitely. Um, when you watch this uh, 6 9 situation unfolding in the public eye, this is... This is something that I've never seen before, where he seemingly has like a huge fan base and is getting essentially no support from anyone in hip hop. Like I was looking through those posts that he put up and I didn't see one comment from a rapper, which was pretty stunning to me. You know, you see a quarter million comments and you don't see one person that you would think of as like a significant rapper. And that's pretty shocking. And it seems like, you know, uh, I feel like if you were a big rap music festival and you were to invite him at this time, I think you would get a huge amount of blowback from the actual rap community. Um, Agreed. What's your perspective on it? And do you think that the rap world sort of has a responsibility to in some ways ignore a lot of the stuff that he's doing? Like Snoop Dogg basically said that in his post the other day where he said, you know, I ain't fucking with him and I ain't fucking with anybody who's supporting that shit either. So it's, it's, it's a very, very unique situation we're seeing with that. How, how do you view that? I, I as think a, that's, the, that's the OG way. Like, you know, the OG way is that if you don't like something somebody's doing, you don't fuck with them. It's really that simple. Hmm. You know, when, when all of this first came out, I was very interested to see how it would go and where it would go because I come from the generation where, you know, you don't snitch. The problem is kind of everybody does, but mm. they deny it. What he did was in, in my eyes unconscionable, but he's been so open and out about it. Like he's not trying to deny it. He's not trying to hide it, which is what most people do. You know, he's just like, yeah, I did it. And I would do it again, <laughs> you know? Right. And I, I was anxious to see how this generation would embrace him coming home. Like, would they support him? Would they shy away from him? Like to me, he's a giant science experiment mm. and I'm looking to see how does this get handled? Because we don't have precedent in hip hop and there's, you know, a shit ton of people that have snitched, but nobody who has actually stood up and said yeah i did and i'll do it again <laughs> right you know like there's there's characters even in like when i'm talking about the brooklyn drill stuff there's people who are popular rappers that have like you know a, a lot of people accusing them of being a snitch but they deny it and so it's kind of up in the air and we don't really even know like like i don't know right. what the real story is for me as a civilian i have no way of figuring that out exactly and, and, and that's it, how it's always been like even right. even in my generation like we all we would all kind of like whisper behind the scenes and you know a lot of guys will be like yo let me check your paper you know let mm. me let me see let me see you know let me see if you have or not but it's never really it there's never really been somebody before that has stood up and said yeah i did it mm. and i do it again <laughs> <laughs> it's, just, it's just so foreign to me because i come from a world where not only do you not do that but you could die for doing that Right. So it's just it's just a little foreign to me. You know, I'm I'm watching Meek Mill's reaction to him and that to me is the norm. Right. You know? I know and the, the idea that he could die for that too is I mean it's a wild situation where he's had to move multiple times over the course of like a week just yeah. because of the level of uh 
you know, the level of heat that's on him. And I mean, I don't want to see anybody get hurt, but it's also like that's the thing that makes people tune in over and over is the idea that it's it's that this guy hasn't been hurt and that it's it's people want to see if finally it's going to happen. It, it, he's become a TV show. He's like a reality show. 100%. It's and more. that's sad because it's, yeah. his, it's his real life. But, you know, it's like he he built this. It's not like somebody put a gun to his head and forced him into the situation that he got himself into in order to put him in a situation where he had to choose to either snitch or do however many years, you know, whatever. So it's 100% self created mm. it's it's you know it's a little hard to feel sorry for him frankly mm. that's a fact um having said that you know i thought prior to all this i thought he was an amazing artist right you know to me he was like this generation's onyx i loved his energy i loved his passion i thought his music was great there was one point where i even tried to reach out to him to work with him when he was coming up he was already like he was already surrounded by a team of people but i would have loved to have worked with him and if I had, he would have never, ever gotten into the situation he was in. Mm, yeah, because, I mean, when you, when you look at that, well, but, you know, that's, that's interesting because there was a lot of people around him early on that I think told him, like, you really don't have a reason to be getting all, like, the, the dude, uh, Snow Billy, who himself is a big-time, like, New York gangster, I was watching an interview with him the other day where he said that even with him being a huge blood in New York, he wanted 6ix9ine to appeal to a different audience and not fully embrace the blood shit. And that was ultimately what basically caused them to split apart was that he split, knew, yeah. he he knew that it. that blood cosine was going to make his shit way bigger than it could have been otherwise. And he actually was willing. Well, to, it did, didn't he, it? He was willing to take <laughs> on that risk, you know? Be careful what you wish for. It might come true. That's a fact. Um, so we have like a half hour left that I think we can reasonably talk. So I, I just wanted to get some some more interesting tales out of you i feel like i uh, we got to try to do a part two if you're up for it but absolutely i love your um podcast by the way oh really yeah Thanks i've been so watching much. you since you were in the back of the store really yeah. that's dope i mean we were there was multiple stores the second store we did a lot more normal stuff the first store was pretty much just an iphone and a and a really okay i didn't i didn't want i didn't know you then Oh, yeah, but I mean, I a lot of people didn't know that we were just filming those interviews on an iPhone. Like, the X interview was filmed on an iPhone on a, on a bike stand. Oh, it was. Okay, I watched you then. Okay. okay. Oh, wow. iPhone on a bike stand, yeah. I um, love it. Okay, talk to me about Lil Wayne. Let's, let's hear a little bit about how you got to know Lil Wayne. And just so um, you know, I'm going to order a salad on my phone on Postmates while we do this, so this is not me texting. Not <laughs> and I'm going to put it behind my thigh. I just sat here and took my 30 daily vitamins in front of you. So, <laughs> you know, I can't, I didn't even, I didn't even like ask you if I could. I just fucking did it. Okay. Um, you know, I've actually never met Lil Wayne. Oh, wow. Okay. Isn't that crazy? He was probably 10, 11, 12, 13 years old, somewhere in there when, when I started working with Cash Money. But um, I'm going to tell you the cash money story because that's kind of that's kind of interesting and funny. Oh, no, I, I, I know that like the cash money story and the no limit story are the big stories. But OK, that's that's very interesting. You never actually met Wayne. Yeah, because right? he was just so young at that time that you he were working. So there. Young. Right. And it was really like they were all about BG at the time. I was all about Wayne, but they were all about BG. Uh -huh. And not to say that I didn't love BG because I did like baby gangsters. Awesome. But 
with Wayne, I just found him to be super lyrical at that young age. And I knew what he was going to grow into. Uh-huh. And I knew he was going to be a beast. And I knew that like over some Manny Fresh tracks, like, you know, I could fart on a Manny tr- Fresh track and it would sound good. Right. It's just he's, you know, he's such a beast with it. Um, I went to New Orleans for a music conference and I went to a store called Peaches, which was the independent record store where kind of everybody shopped. And I saw um, an album and the rapper's name was, I think Pimp Daddy. Mm. I forget his name, to be honest. But I came out of the store and I popped it into my rental car and I loved it. And I turned it over and I saw the Cash Money logo. And I'm like, this is really, this is really great. I need to go find these guys. So I started looking for them and I went into the, I went into the projects. And the funny thing about being a white woman in the projects is people either thought I was a cop or a social worker. Right. Either way, it was a loss, right? I couldn't find them. So I went to Calliope, I went to Magnolia. I still couldn't, I couldn't find them. So that was in May of 97. I went back to New York. I was living in Brooklyn at the time. I went, I went back to Brooklyn and I got a call from a street team guy out of Houston called Lump. And he wanted to introduce me to the two brothers that ran Cash Money Records and they needed help. And he felt like I could really help them. And I'm like, how did this just drop on my fucking lap? This was in August. So three months later, here it is dropping, you know, into my lap. And I'm like, this is awesome. I'm like, guys, I, you know, I really want to work with you. I want to shop you a deal. I helped do Eminem's deal. I helped do Twista's deal. I helped with do or die. Like I've got, you know, I've got this track record and you should let me shop you a deal. And they came to me because I had played a small role in Master P's deal and they hated Master P, Mm. but they wanted the type of deal that he had. And I knew that we could get that because they had been putting out 31 CDs over a six year period. Mm. So they had so much music in the marketplace. The only thing is they kept dropping it fast, like back to back. So they'd put out a project, it would get sales of like, between 5,000 and 25,000, they'd put out the next thing. Then they'd put out the next thing. So they weren't really giving enough time to get anything up to like 100,000, but they could have easily. Right. And they weren't going outside of um, Louisiana and Texas. So I knew that if we brought them up into Chicago, where I had the relationships from working with Twista, and if we brought them into um, the mid South, like Memphis and Mississippi, that they would just be out of here. So when I started working with them, I put together a business plan. I started shopping them a deal. And at the same time, I start, started helping them build their numbers so that instead of just selling 5,000 to 25,000 units, they would be at like 75,000 to a hundred thousand, which I knew is what was the magic spot that would make the major labels go crazy. And really the reason that they got such an amazing deal is they let me say no for nine months. That's right. really why their deal was so great. We just kept turning people down. The deals weren't right. Right. The right. very first deal was from penalty records. It was for 75,000 and it was just for juvenile. They wanted just juvenile because he was kind of bubbling pretty well. At he that was point. the star at that time for sure. He was yeah. the star at that point or, or would have been the star at that Do point. Do you remember how you felt when you first saw the Hoth video? Because for me as like a 12 year old, that was a pretty, pretty seismic moment. Yes. 
Yes. I mean, I always knew that they could do, I always knew they could be big. I didn't know they could be as big as they were. Right. I knew they'd be huge. And I had the same thing with Eminem. Like with Eminem, I always knew he was going to be huge, but I didn't think he'd become like the biggest. And it was, I had the same feeling with Cash Money. It was like, wow, I know these guys are going to be be huge, but like they outsold anything I could eat, have even have forecasted or dreamt about. And I especially realized it, like how was, you know, seismic, like you said, but when they put out Back That Ass Up mm. and I saw that that song was being played at like white weddings, I was like, holy shit. Yeah. Like that was just some next level shit. And I, I, that's when I realized, okay, these guys are international superstars. That's actually hilarious to even think about how much had to change between like the Ha video, which I was in love with it. The second that I saw it, the video itself was unbelievable. But then back that ass up is only a couple years later, but they had gone you know, they had like been able to translate what they were doing into and like back that ass up was just the perfect epitomization of like how we're going to take our sound and sort of sneak it into a more mainstream audience by giving them worldwide. a straight booty anthem. Absolutely. And so was that ever part of the conversations you were having with them is like we need to no. find that massive hit. No, no, <laughs> no. It was really just getting them to the next level mm. so that they could then go in. I never really have creative conversations with artists. I, I stay on the business side because I feel like it's their art form. Right. And I put so much value in the art that it's really them. Like I don't want to influence anything that they do negatively or positively. Uh -huh. I might pull somebody aside like when I worked with C murder, you know, some of his music was just so misogynistic and we had such an amazing relationship that it was like, wait a minute, how can you be that guy? Uh -huh. <laughs> you know? So he and I have had countless conversations about it, you know, in terms of his lyrics and, and what he was saying, but it's how he really felt like it wasn't like he was making up his feelings. It's like, these are the women that he grew up around and this was how he really felt. Mm -hmm. And it was his way of getting it out. And I would never try to censor an artist from getting out the emotion. Cause I, I believe that music is therapy for artists mm -hmm. and trying to hold it in. It's, it's sort of like needing to throw up and you try to hold it in, it's like you can't. You just got to get it out. Yeah, I've never, uh, I've always like thought about and wondered how I could make myself a part of that studio experience. Like if I were to sign an artist, how I would then want to interact with the music that they were making. And like, you know, I, I see it a lot of times when I see people who are, who are producers or who are engineers, where they're very, they're very easily able to sort of slip into the, into that that experience of them being in the studio and have a really positive impact on the artist. Myself, I've never made music, I never made beats, so it's like I'm open to the idea of signing somebody, but I have no idea how I would be able to sort of have an impact in that scenario. I think the reality is that you don't necessarily need to. Mm. Like you have to sign somebody that you believe in 
and that you want to just help them get to the next level. Like you just want to sort of give them a leg up. You don't want to ever be the guy in the studio um, or at least I shouldn't say you, but for me, I never wanted to be the person in the studio that, you know, was, was feeling like, oh, gee, I always wanted to be a rapper. Now here's my chance. I'm going to have this guy go in and say everything that I always wanted to say. Mm. I, it, for me, it's just got to be more authentic than that. And I think the really great um, creators are the people that can shape that and let the artist bring out what's best that's already inside of them. Like a really great producer might give you some ideas of, of topics and how to say things a little bit differently and how to sort of step back and have more of a bird's eye view. Like instead of talking about how, you know, um, one person fucked you over to make a song that's about struggle because it'll relate to more people. So I think they're good at at helping the artists see how to how to look at things from a different angle mm. but i don't think the great producers are the ones that say oh you should say it like this you should say it like that they might hear them fuck up in their in their flow and say okay you need to re-say that because you stumbled a little mm. or you're a little offbeat and it doesn't sound right sometimes being a little offbeat is amazing right. but it's got to sound right and i think a great producer is somebody that can be in the studio and sort of cultivate the creativity to make it be the best that it can be without controlling it yeah there's a couple of times i've been in the studio with a rapper and i've like corrected their grammar in terms of like a lyric and i I've do that in my head i've never got any pushback i've always had them be like okay you're right like they, they, like right. somehow that is one thing that like when I explain, like, yo, you, you, this, like, you used a plural here, so you have to change how you said this part in the beginning, and they're like, hundred <laughs> percent. And also, yeah, that that stands out to me too. Is I hate when rappers are just too off topic. Like, if you're talking about one thing and then you just completely like lose the momentum and just switch it up to something else, and I'm just, I've never done it, but I've often been like, maybe you shouldn't just go from talking about like your heartbreak to just talking about you know uh you know running down on your enemy or some shit right away like like maybe stay a little bit more lyrically focused that's one thing i really appreciate in a rapper right right I don't know. that's just me. i just really i just really like authenticity and i love when rappers can be themselves and it's just you know like i got into it for that like i'm in it for the culture not to try to change who they are and maybe that's bad maybe that's good i don't know but it no. works for me yeah i think it's good you got to just like be able to sort of figure out where you fit in um exactly okay so with rap coalition which is is that's your primary thing on the day-to-day -day now or, or what, what are the, yes. the businesses I mean, that you work on daily the, it, it's the it's the not-for-profit side of what i do um, we educate artists and we pull artists out of bad deals. It's not something I have to do every day. Thank God. Um, I mean, education is, but pulling people out of bad deals. I don't, I don't do that every day. Um, we're in our 28th year. We still don't charge for that. We still help artists for free, mm. but on the for-profit side of what I do, I run a company called power moves and we help artists make money with their music. So when an artist has an investor, and by investor, I mean, they have to have around a quarter million dollars, right? Because that's what it takes to make money in music. That's what it takes to build an independent label or a hugely successful career. They usually reach out to me and say, okay, I've got the investor. Now, 
show me how to do this. And very hands-on, we show them how to market, how to promote, how to structure and organize their um, company, how to get to that next level so that there'll be money coming back into the company so that they can then go on to sign other artists and really build um, an independent record label, like a real one, you mm -hmm. know? Um, some people that hire me want to build leverage so that they, they can go and get a deal. I'm not against that, but I really like the guys that can stay independent. Like to me, that's just awesome. When you can have the control over your career, you can call the shots and then you can build a company so that you can keep doing the same thing for others coming behind you. Like that's the goal is Definitely. to build as many independent labels as I possibly can before I die. Just, just as a high-profile example, when you were watching the situation go down with Megan The Stallion and uh, Carl Crawford, um, is that the kind of situation that you see playing out all the time, where you have a guy who's, you know, not really a music industry guy, but he's trying to start a label of some sort. He signs somebody to a, a deal that might be sort of objectionable, and then uh, you sort of get called in. I'm assuming around like the time that. Megan had to have Rock Nation called in where she she just basically realized that the terms of her deals weren't fair. Um, were you looking at that specific deal and did you have any strong feelings about it? Um, and I, I, I did look at that deal. I didn't speak out on it because I didn't know I didn't know what the deal was with 300. Mm. And it's very hard for me to look at her deal with Carl Crawford and not know what they signed to at 300 because the deal that they signed to is what would have made that deal good or bad. And what I mean by that is I think the split was 60, 40 between them. I can't really remember, but mm. let's just say for the sake of argument that it was 60, 40. And if, if she's getting 60% of a hundred percent, that's fucking great. Right. But if she's getting 60% of 12 points, that's some fuck shit. So I couldn't speak on it because I didn't know what the deal was between the label she was signed to and the label that was inevitably paying them, you know, and nobody can speak on that except people that have seen that agreement. Right. Um, I'm interested to see what happens with it going to court because at the end of the day, she signed a contract. So I'm anxious to see what Texas courts do. You know, the, the, artist friendly side of me is anxious to see if the court will throw it out. But the side of me that saw how much money he spent to get her where he got her makes me say, mm, you know, he should get a return on his investment. Right. Sometimes artists, you know, I'm going through that with one of my clients right now. Like sometimes artists don't look at the value of the money or the experience. I've got a client who put, you know, over $125,000 into a rapper. And the rapper was like, yeah, I'm not happy now. I'm just going to go sign to QC. Right. And, and it doesn't work that way. Like if you sign an agreement with somebody, you have to live up to that agreement or you have to negotiate your way out of it. There is no, I'm just going to pretend this didn't happen. Right. It's do like trying to get unpregnant. It, it, it's very hard to do. Do you feel like the average rapper coming out right now yeah, I mean, everybody signs to a major label. It feels like these days. You've, do do you yourself see a very value or a very, you know, a, a logical path that they could take that doesn't involve signing to a major label, or do you end up thinking that Absolutely. most most artists need to do that? No, I don't think artists need to at all. I think that 
you know, everybody has to do what's best for them. So I don't want to say all of one thing is great or none of another isn't right. Mm -hmm. So there are people that have done very well. Um, Macklemore's done great independent. Um, Chance, Chance the Rapper has done great independent. But when you see like Macklemore had that, that big explosion for a couple of years and then sort of, you know, it doesn't feel like his career has necessarily had the legs that you might have expected. And I guess sort that of in had the to be his choice, though. I mean, yeah, I wonder that. And sometimes I wonder if it was the label. And same thing with Chance. Like Chance, huge artist, but we never really saw him have that mega hit. It was like there's certain things that didn't seem like they really happened in Chance's career that maybe they right. would have if he had been signed to a massive label, and they, right? And they, and they may have. I'm assuming that if he didn't have a mega hit, he didn't want one. Mm. Because we all know that he could have bought a mega hit. Right. You know, he's got the money. He's got the access. So he may have just been driven by wanting to just build a career and put music out that he wanted people to hear. And I don't know him. So it's really hard for me to speak about what his intentions are. But to me, he is a gospel rapper. Like he is, you know, I just didn't notice it for the first couple of albums. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I just feel like he's a, he's driven by something a little different than wanting to be the next Drake. Right. I may be wrong. Like I said, I don't know him. I just feel like he puts music out that he wants to share with the world. He's not trying to be the next big superstar. So Could you be a superstar independently? I don't know. It's not been proven. I pro if, if my goal as a rapper was to be as big as, as Drake, I would probably sign to a major label. If I was an artist that didn't have any entrepreneurial ability mm. and no hustle, I would for sure sign to a major label. So I don't, I don't want to imply that major labels don't have a place in this mm. or that they're bad because they're not. They're just, they're just different. You know, I see major labels as a cruise ship and I see independent rappers as jet skis mm. and they both have their benefits. I wouldn't want to take a jet ski all the way to Europe. I'd rather be on a cruise ship to do that. Right. But I also wouldn't want to be on a cruise ship if I had to make a U-turn really quickly. You know, if, if I was, if I was going towards, um, uh, I don't know, like an iceberg, I wouldn't want to be in a cruise ship. I'd rather be on a jet ski. Cause I know I could just zip around it so easily. No, Whereas yeah. that's, a, ship, a, that's a pretty good metaphor. I went to it. That's a pretty good metaphor. I was thinking about saying like, would you rather, uh, be the, the, the general manager of a home Depot or would you rather start your own local hardware store? And, uh, yeah, but I, I guess it, I like it depends your, on your goals. I like and if I'm going to start my own hardware store, I'm absolutely going to join Ace Hardware because right. I'd want that, you know, I'd want that, that, and we have Merlin in the independent world. So I'd want that, that magic of being able to group with all the other mom and pop stores to get the discounts. Yeah, that is, uh, that is a strange thing. Like I, I grew up with, uh, you know, constantly, because my mom's a librarian, I grew up constantly hearing the argument, not from her necessarily, but the idea that we need to, you know, support local bookstores because Barnes and Nobles is just coming through and destroying all of them. And now the argument is basically, you need to support Barnes and Nobles because Amazon's going to destroy them. <laughs> yes, it's that's real. Yeah, because now so they- When you were a kid, did you read a lot or did you mm. rebel against it because your mom was a librarian? Yeah, no, she got me into it like real young to the point where just- you know, I definitely spent a lot of time not reading, but certainly, you know, she, she made it like a very normal part of my life from really early Same on, here. which is like a huge thing that I'm just 
mega thankful for when I really think about it. Like I know a ton of people who just did not grow up with that influence. And it's, it's yeah. the kind of thing now where reading, you know, reading books feels very optional to a lot of, uh, young people whereas like probably even when i was you know when i was being raised in like the late 80s early 90s when i was like in my childhood uh that was sort of true then too where it's like you know reading wasn't so necessary in the age of television and everything but i i, yeah. I hope that i can still convince my kids of the importance of reading long form stuff you will because it's in you uh, you know when i was growing up my my parents would take me to the bookstore and we were allowed to choose one book and we were allowed to choose i can't remember if it was every other week or every month it was probably every month and that was such it was like a treat and it was like going to the toy store mm -hmm. and i think that it's if you raise a child to think that having a book is special or reading is special they'll read do you still read Today? Oh yeah, yeah, definitely. And I find I that too. that's a lot of because uh, one I another thing that I've like really been able to find time for in the pandemic is uh, just doing these sort of like long form videos on my channel where I just investigate the fuck out of something and then basically find a way to write about it and then turn that into a video. And I feel like so many people are limited to the information that is on the internet. And it's like if you want to, you know, I, I feel like I'm working on a video about Pimp C. Um, Julia Beverly's book about him is like absolutely unbelievable. It is. And most of the time when you listen to people talk about Pimp C on the internet, you primarily like you could pretty much draw lines between the things on his Wikipedia and the things that people are talking about because people just tend to go towards the most basic explanation of a person. So, you know, pretty much like if you like I could imagine myself making like an incredibly in-depth video on Tupac, but I'm not going to be able to make it off of just you know, like I'm going to be extremely limited if I just stick to the stuff that's on YouTube that everybody's looking at. Whereas these books, like there's so many books that are just sitting there on the shelf. And if you were to take however many hours to really dig in there, I mean, there's unbelievable amounts of information that just isn't really online yet. Exactly. Mm. Uh, Wendy, I definitely am going to put together some more questions and hit you up in the very near future and try to do this again, because it's one of the better conversations I, I had in recent memory. Thank you. That's a huge compliment. I'm so humbled that you were like, come do this. I was like, oh, fuck. You know, it's it's one thing to talk with people about the industry, but it's another thing to talk to people whose shit you actually watch. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate I mean? that. And I'm just, I'm really, really, really humbled by that. Thank you. I actually, my, uh, my publicist, Laura, I think gave me the idea because she is, she is, more familiar with like every personality in hip hop, including people who are, you know, people who made their mark 40 years ago, including people who have 5,000 followers on YouTube right now. Like she is so ridiculously familiar with, with all this stuff. And I'm not hundred percent sure why all the time, but she actually, I think, uh, that's tossed, her thing. she tossed yeah. me the idea and I was like, wow, that is a great this. idea, Laura. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you, Laura. Thank you, Laura. Rock. It's always, thank you, Laura. And she will have to do timestamps for this. So she's going to see this in real time as she's sitting there writing out the notes about everything else you said. And I'm sure that she'll, she's probably in tears right now. She's kind of, kind of oh. emotional. Oh, Hey, when's your baby due? Uh, Halloween. Are you nervous? Uh, it's a little spooky, but not, not so much. I'm so proud of you. Good for you. <laughs> I'm excited. Yeah. I just, I hope I can, uh, find ways consistently to make my girlfriend feel like I am you know, a very big part of 
to child rearing because I know her so well and I know that she's the type to really just like take on everything she possibly can without really asking for help. So I'm just I'm, step up. I'm trying to get her into that mentality of like you have to ask me, you have to tell me that this, this, and this are my responsibility and I'll do it. But don't like you know I just don't want her to think that she's limited to the amount of help that I sort of like outwardly just give her. I'm like you got to demand shit of me, you know? Right. As yeah. long as she knows that, that's fine. But every now and again, you're going to have to just step up. Yeah. Like when you see her tired, step in. Exactly. Yeah, I'm trying to be more because she's just too she, she's too polite. She just doesn't want to tell me that she needs like what she needs from me. And it's like I, that's yeah. that's my main concern way. is rising to the occasion, you know? Yeah, I'm the same way. I've killed every relationship I've ever had because of that. Really? Yeah, it's really hard to like say, I need this, I need that. Really? I just do it. Wow, yeah. that's interesting. Hmm. Maybe that's I should get you on the phone with her. Interesting, bad. <laughs> Put that on the list of questions for the next time. <laughs> there you go. Hey, and uh, any artists out there who who need help uh, or who who want an opinion, who want expertise, uh, how can they get in touch with you? Um, there's two ways. They can either text me at four zero four seven three seven one nine zero two, or they can email me at thisiswendyday at gmail .com. Okay, amazing. Either way is good. Oh, hey, Wendy, thank you so much. And thank you for uh, really everything you've done in the industry for all these years. There's so many artists thank out you, there man. that people probably don't don't know that you are so influential in, in their careers and stuff. We only kind of skimmed the surface here. So massively and appreciate your time. It. That's the amazing part is still I haven't stopped. It. There you go. Thank uh, you, love. Give me an artist you're, you're extremely excited about at this moment. I really like Rod Wave and I really like Roddy Rich. Like they're two that I'm just really like without even having to think about like who who I would say to you. Like I'm watching both of them and and I'm amazed by both of them. I love Mozzie out of the Bay Area. I think Mozzie's just incredible. Very true. Mozzie, you got to listen to his album over and over and over. And then you still are going to have to go on Google and look up like a million different slang terms and different I like, love that, though. weird gang references and shit. It's like, yeah, I, I, very, love I love a rap album where I understand the actual words that they're saying, but it's so deep into the culture that they're of that right. it takes a lot of clarification because there's so many rappers I listen to right away and I'm just like, I know everything that they just said and none of it was interesting. And right. that's what then the Mozzie, he's creating this labyrinth of, of different things for you to sort of travel through. Exactly. It makes it very interesting. Who are you listening to right now that you absolutely love? Wow, that's a good question. Like a lot of these Brooklyn guys I've been listening to a lot lately. Um, I've been listening to the new Drake album. Uh, God, I don't know. I'm super deep into this Brooklyn shit. I'm not going to lie. That's been a huge part of Chef G's. I really love that about you. Like you go down the, the labyrinth, like you're going down the, the rabbit hole. And I love that. Yes. And once you get into like the random like kids who are in gangs, who are not necessarily rappers, but are on Instagram acting crazy. There's some weird shit out there, Wendy. I'm going to send you some links. Please. I would love that. <laughs> okay. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate your time. it. I appreciate you so much. Thank you. Thank you, love. Appreciate it. Take care.